Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove. My name is Ryan Howard, I am your host and king of the Boneheads. Let me sit up straight in my chair. I am not a slouch. Let me tell you that. I'm many things, but a slouch is not one of them. So, thank you uh, for uh, joining me this evening. Uh, we are going to... Do a little bit of a different thing tonight. I've got a topic that I want to talk about, uh, but honestly, like I don't have anything to show as far as the the visual side of things. So for those of you who watch this on YouTube or join me live here on Twitch, uh, it's just going to be me talking to the camera. Uh, those of you on audio, you're not going to really notice any difference here. Uh, so yeah, I mean... This is kind of a fireside chat. Uh, for anyone who currently has a fire going, it's April. So I guess you could still... I, I guess you're still within spring bonfire season. It was definitely cool enough today that you could get away with a, a bonfire this evening. But yes, think of this as a fireside chat. <clears throat> and yes... You should have marshmallows. Although the the funny thing about that is I always... And again, the funny thing is just... I need to get out of my own head. I am in a weird headspace right now. Anyway. Um, I always associate fires more with the uh, fall. Like the smell of a bonfire to me is a fall smell. Uh, not necessarily a spring smell... Uh, but climate-wise, I mean, yeah, you could do it. You could definitely do it. And it's not a bonfire without marshmallows. So uh, keep that in mind as you are setting things ablaze. Anyway, the topic for this evening, as you can see from the, uh, the title, is the importance of fantasy and RPGs. And as far as the importance... This is going to be the importance to me, as well as the importance uh, culturally and historically, and what these kinds of narratives typically represent or mean or you know bring about for people. There's going to be a little talk about history, a little talk about philosophy, and hopefully by the end of this, <clears throat> you guys will understand a little bit more uh, what I see in fantasy games. Uh, what I see in RPGs as a whole, uh, especially since they come out of the tradition of fantasy, and 
you know, hopefully we can have a little bit of a deeper intellectual understanding of RPGs. So this is just, you know, me pontificating, me talking about history and philosophy, you know, two things that I love a lot, and applying them to another thing that I really love, that being RPGs. So, um, the best place to begin here is with what would be the birth of fantasy, because without fantasy, you don't get RPGs. Uh, it's this love of the fantasy genre that really brings about RPGs, and it's from fantasy wargaming that the RPG is born. So understanding the kinds of stories or the kinds of scenarios that uh, Gary Gygax and all of the early you know, founding fathers of RPGs were trying to create, uh, that's going to be the key to this. Now, I've said before multiple times in the past, and other guests have said this as well, you can hear this on you know any show that delves into the history and the inspiration behind D&D uh, &D and anything dealing with, I believe it's Appendix N. Let me make sure that I'm... Uh, Let me make sure that I'm correct here. Yep, Appendix N. So if we look at, you know, Appendix N as far as who appears on this list, you know, you're you're looking at people like Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, Fritz Lieber, H.P. Lovecraft, Michael Moorcock, uh, Tolkien is obviously on there, although, you know... I would argue Tolkien does not have as much influence on D&D &D as some of these other writers. Jack Vance, of course, that's where the, the magic system very much comes from. Um, for some reason, he's not... Oh, no, there he is. Robert E. Howard, also, uh, I would argue, the most important figure in where D&D &D comes from, because Robert E. Howard very much pioneered the sword and sorcery genre, uh, which is the fantasy tradition that Dungeons & Dragons comes out of. And I'm not just saying this because of my family history. Uh, Robert E. Howard, if, if there's no Conan, there's no D&D. Uh, &D. Full stop. Without Conan, none of this exists. <clears throat> I am willing to go so far as to, to make that claim, that without Conan, there is no D&D. So, you know, that that's kind of where we, uh, we begin things here. But before we even get into the different kinds of fantasy, what influences D&D &D and what that means, you know, philosophically, I think we have to discuss where fantasy comes from. Um, and ultimately, the 
origin point of fantasy is mythology. It's myth. It is stories that were passed down orally generation to generation to explain how the world got to be the way it is, uh, you know, what makes things work to the understanding of these people. Um, you know, that that's where fantasy is born, is from this oral tradition, this myth that ultimately turns into the stories of Homer and Virgil, which have been recorded and saved, uh, you know, in, in literature form in one way or the other. There are, you know, variations on the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, all these things that come about uh, because they began orally. Um, but ultimately, that's the birthplace of fantasy. And, and philosophically, what we have here, as I've already explained... Uh, you have stories that kind of explain natural phenomenon that these people didn't really understand at the time. Uh, you know, why does the sun rise? It's Apollo's chariot. Um, you know, the, the tides, uh, all, all these different natural things, the, the way that the world is set in motion. Why is it that way? Because, you know, for, for early people who didn't have any kind of scientific understanding or any codified knowledge, I'm, you, you think about all the things we take for granted and have scientific explanations for. Obviously, those weren't always there. So, you know, mythology is making sense of the senseless. before, you know, reason and the scientific method are discovered and, and made what they are and, and what we now rely on them for. That's where we begin, is with myth. Um, and part of this myth, specific to what we now know as fantasy, the, the main mythology that is important here, besides what you know, Homer and Virgil build for the Greeks and the Romans, respectively, is the Arthurian legend. It is the mythical tales of King Arthur that really begin to form fantasy as we know it. And another thing I want to talk about with fantasy, this is a little bit of a tangent, but... The, the word fantasy, as I'm sure everyone knows, it, it's just, you know, imaginary, wondrous, uh, you know, a, a world imagined, a world that does not exist. Speculative fiction could all be described as fantasy. And speculative fiction is a broad category that generally includes everything from fantasy, medieval fantasy as we know it, to science fiction, to horror, all of these things. You know, it's broadly categorized as speculative fiction. So, how does fantasy come to describe 
horses, swords, dragons, castles, knights. Because the word itself, if we look it up, just means in the noun form... Uh, the faculty or activity of imagining things, especially things that are impossible or improbable. Um, so yeah, it's it's literally just a flight of fancy, uh, an imagination let loose is is fantasy. And the reason why, as a broad genre category, fantasy usually means medieval or vaguely medieval and has you know come to mean that is is pretty much because of uh you know europe it's it is a it is a european specifically an anglo-saxon projection of what they fantasized about in the formative years that fantasy was being codified into its own unique genre, which is right around the middle of the 19th century, right around the 1850s, is when we really get the first fantasy novel, which I believe is, let's see, had this pulled up not too terribly long ago. The, the arguably the first two fantasy novels are uh, The King of the Golden River by John Ruskin, which came out in 1841, and uh, Fantasties, I believe is how you pronounce that, by George MacDonald, uh, which came out in 1858. <clears throat> As did, I believe, the Princess... No, The Princess and the Goblin came out later. But George MacDonald is generally considered the the progenitor of fantasy, or what we now know as fantasy. And he was a big influence on Tolkien and Lewis, um, as was William Morris, uh, as were a few other individuals who we'll get into in a little bit. But the reason why this kind of medieval European, or specifically medieval England or medieval United Kingdom, that area, is what we picture as fantasy, is because, you know, with, you know, the United States and Europe being kind of the centers of literature, a lot of imaginative literature of kind of these these golden eras is set in that particular time period. Because the Middle Ages between Rome and the Renaissance is a time of upheaval, of changing, where antiquity becomes the modern world by the time you get to the 15th century and, or even the 14th century and the Renaissance. Excuse me. So. Any time of massive change, massive upheaval, 
anytime where there's like wide spaces to explore um different peoples who are eventually brought together and united um kind of first interacting with each other periods where a lot of knowledge is lost or a lot of knowledge has been fictionalized these are periods that tend to capture people's imaginations uh, now, any any period can obviously do this, but if you think about specific to the U.S., the Wild West. The Wild West is the American version of kind of, you know, Anglo-Saxon, or, sorry, the Anglo-Saxons Middle Ages period. I'm not very articulate, unfortunately. I have a lot of thoughts, but, you know, getting them to, to come out uh, can be a little bit of a struggle sometimes, especially when I'm drinking whiskey. But, you know, this, this period was basically the Wild West for Europe. A major empire has fallen, uh, a new empires are being built and rising up, and there are all these people who were brought together in a way, but also still very separate. Um, you've got kind of these ancient buildings that have stood for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, that are now, you know, have been laid waste due to war and decay and, you know, not being used. And a lot of the infrastructure that Rome built is crumbling. Um so there's a lot of change going on, a lot of transitions into what becomes the modern world. Uh, and same way in the Wild West, you have the old structure of the kind of antebellum world, and then a massive war splits the United States into two factions, basically. Maybe more, but for the most part, two factions— these factions fight it out, and then you've got people who used to be Americans now considered a conquered people. And you have this whole Western territory uh, that people are fleeing to to escape the war or going to. You know, now that the war's over, a lot of homes have been destroyed. Uh, rather than stay a conquered people, you definitely have people who are, you know, going out West. And you have uh, the army. The United States Army refocusing its mission out west as people go out there, as people explore, and as the U.S. begins to come together into what it ultimately becomes in, in the modern era. So in a lot of ways, these two periods are similar. Massive upheaval, upheaval followed by expansion and solidification of countries or states, in the case of the U.S., into what we now know them. So there's lots of gaps in knowledge, lots of things that may have been recorded or known at one point but are now lost to us, and in that morass of uncertainty there is ripe territory for stories and legends, and you know, you see that at the time with magazines like Harper's Ferry, or sorry, Harper's Weekly, Harper's Ferry is a city in Virginia, there's an armory there. But no, Harper's Weekly, publishing stories about people like uh, Wild Bill Hickok. Uh, already, like, exaggerations about what the people in the West are doing come about pretty much immediately 
And so there's there's lots of uh, room for imaginations to run wild. And you see the same thing, like I said, in medieval Europe. So how do these flights of fancy, these fantasies about what happened in this kind of middle period come about and coalesce as literature? Well, as... Printing becomes an easier process as language becomes more and more prevalent. All these things happen. It's a cascade effect. Suddenly, the the people who are literate, instead of, you know, having to rely on their own memories or other people's memories to know the history of their people and their world, now they have to begin writing these things down so that, you know, these stories can be saved in the correct form, or quote-unquote correct form, uh, depending on the story, they can be saved for posterity, and widely disseminated and distributed. So, as the, you know, as language develops, as a a class begins to coalesce around literate people, uh, these stories go from just being oral tales to books manuscripts eventually uh right around the the 15th century the early 1600s the idea of the novel comes together which is a book book length story uh, one book dedicated to an entire story um cervantes is arguably the the father of the european novel don quixote People have said is the first true novel, although there are some early forms of novels that you can find in Rome and in 10th and 11th century Japan. Uh, Japan is actually very early in kind of creating this this novel type of storytelling, but uh, it's it doesn't kind of take the same form just because of the way that books are published in the U.S., and and we're talking about Europe, anyway. So, you know, these things become books. Um, Literature is kind of developed as entertainment for the upper class. One of the first places where you see kind of the origin points of the fantasy novel is in chivalric romances, and this is where the story of King Arthur kind of comes in here because, you know, the the lore of King Arthur is around the 5th or 6th century AD. So you'd be looking at, like, the 6 to 700s at that point. Um, and obviously these historical records are not kept very well because, you know, writing is not as common then as it later becomes. Obviously, uh... You know, the developed languages are languages like Greek and Latin, which some people in Britain would know, but it would not be widely known, especially north of Hadrian's Wall in places like, you know, Scotland, Ireland, uh, even the the Welsh didn't seem to have terribly much exposure to the Romans. There, I might not be right about that. I'm not a historian, but... 
know, people will correct me on that, I imagine. But anyway, these chivalric romances, this is where the conception of what fantasy is uh, takes form. Uh, and, and a lot of these are focused on Arthur and the Arthurian legend, characters like Lancelot, Galahad, Gawain, Arthur himself. This is where it begins. But a literature begins to develop around... Uh, you know, knight errants, going on quests, finding love, and they generally serve not just as entertainment for the upper class, but as kind of a guide uh, for what you should be as a knight, as a lord. Kind of a glorification of the state, if you will, um, which is important to maintaining state power you have to you know convince people that what they're doing is the right thing plato talks about this explicitly if you read the republic the whole notion of plato's republic is that it's built on a lie called the grand lie that basically splits people into uh different categories based on their uh based on their talents, based on their uh, attributes. There's a big word that I'm, I'm not able to grasp right now, but it's all kind of, you know, based on what people uh, gravitate towards what they're good at. You're lying to people saying, you know, this... This type of people, because they're this way, these are the ones who should rule us, and these people should be, uh, you know, the the bureaucrats, and these people should be the laborers, and there's no shame in being in one or the other. It's just a matter of, you know, what the content of your soul is. And Plato admits this is a lie, um, but it's an important lie to maintain the republic, and this is why. You know, Plato ultimately is critical of democracy because he views it as mob rule. In fact, that's what the word democracy literally means, is mob rule. And so he creates this mythology around the philosopher king and, and what it means to truly be a sovereign. And what a, a true sovereign would behave like. But this carries over into these, uh, you know, chivalric romances. It tells you basically what a sovereign should be, how a knight would act... This is what really kind of codifies what we know as chivalry. And and far more intelligent and informed people than myself have done videos on this. Uh, Shadiversity is a great one to go to. He's got tons of videos on what, you know, true medieval culture was like, especially, especially when it comes to chivalry. But this... Um, this idea of, you know, literature giving people an ideal to strive for is where kind of we enter the uh, the realm of medieval fantasy, which, you know, continues throughout history till we get to, you know, around the point of Cervantes, uh, who writes Don Quixote, which is actually a parody of chivalric fantasies, which had been popular for roughly 400 years at this point, you know, four to 500 years. And by the time you get to about 1605, 
chivalric romances have become passe. And so Cervantes writes Don Quixote as a parody. It, in a lot of ways, it's, um, Don Quixote is kind of the first caricature of a fanboy. He's someone who's read too many romances and now thinks himself a knight errant. Um, and so then you, you get into this whole literary genre of, uh, satirical romances, a tradition which, uh, the play, one of my favorite plays, um, and of course I blank on it as soon as, (laughs) oh goodness, uh, the Steve Martin movie Roxanne is based on it, um, I'm going to kick myself. Cyrano de Bergerac. I'm a moron. Again, I love Cyrano de Bergerac. Like, that's not even a... That's not an exaggeration. I love that play. And and the movie Roxanne is great. But that's, that's where, you know, something like that falls. Cyrano is a caricature of someone who would enjoy uh, chivalric romance a little too much. But, you know, come the time, you know, and we're skipping forward a lot here for the sake of time, because this is all we also need to talk about RPGs and this thing about RPGs. So, you know, as the novel develops, fantasy becomes a topic that is frequently visited. And of course, uh, you know, with fantasy, we, we eventually get to these stories, mostly written for children, Um As people, as cynicism sets in, as the Enlightenment takes hold, and, you know, we realize uh, that reason should govern our actions, not myths about what great people in the past have done. It's the Enlightenment that really kills this idea of uh, romances showing you how to live your life. And so instead, these become stories to entertain children. Because children are still developing their their faculties for reason. And so having an aspirational figure for them to try to emulate is is more of a goal worth pursuing in, in the minds of uh, you know, thought leaders of the time rather than gearing these things towards adults. Um, I actually slightly disagree with that. I think a lot of people are very influenced by media and giving them, you know, good role models in media, even as adults, is still important because a lot of people, it's weird to say, but a lot of people do, you know, emulate what they read, what they see, uh, even above kind of their, their reason even, you know, as it kind of breaks the bounds of reality. And so having aspirational figures in media for adults is still very important, in my opinion. But anyway, you know, these early stories are obviously influenced by Arthurian legend, which at this point has become the canon mythology of Britain, is the Arthurian legend. 
and the legend of the Scottish Highlanders, um, you know, William Wallace, Rob Roy, all those figures, uh, along with Arthur, along with uh, Gawain and or Gawain and Lancelot. Lancelot's actually a French addition to the Arthurian canon. Just throwing that out there. Lancelot's French. And from there, we get into, uh, again, and this is skipping multiple steps here, but, you know, we, we get to the point where Tolkien is influenced by these writers, and right around the same time, if we're looking at when Conan the Barbarian is first published, um, the first Conan story is published, I believe, in 1935. Actually, um, 1932. It was originally written to be published in 1929, rejected by the magazine Argosy. Uh, For anyone who doesn't know... By this axe I rule, the first published Conan the Barbarian story was supposed to be about Cull, uh, who was Howard's first character. Uh, and it was supposed to be the last of the Cull series, because it's about Cull as an older man. Uh, but it becomes The Phoenix and the Sword, which is published in 1932. Um... And then The Hobbit, which is kind of the the first major part of Tolkien's fantasy, although he was also writing The Silmarillion and other things all the way back in, like, 1919. I mean, these are two figures. One's in uh, Cross Plains, Texas, in the United States, and the other one is an English professor. And, you know, these things are not influenced by each other they're they're created separately and released within a few years of each other but the hobbits released in 1937 and from these kind of two places we get modern modern fantasy as the hobbit becomes the lord of the rings and the Silmarillion is released and you know on and on the tolkien Influence, which creates high fantasy. And then you have Robert E. Howard, Fritz Lieber, Edgar Rice Burroughs. These are not people of the lofty intellectual heights of someone like J.R.R. Tolkien, who's creating his own language, creating his own world, coming at this from a very professorial uh, angle. Instead, you've got you know, people like Robert E. Howard, who read the same things that Tolkien read, read the same historical accounts, many of which were fictionalized. Um, that's an interesting point in the development of fantasy. For the longest time, there was no distinction between fiction and nonfiction within literature. It was all categorized broadly as, you know, history and politics. So you would have true historical accounts 
released, you know, alongside fictionalized historical accounts. And so there's a lot of conflation of myth and reality. Which is why history of this period, or of the, like, Middle Ages and earlier is somewhat hard to parse, but becoming easier to parse as we discover more and more. But from this, we get the modern conception of high fantasy and sword and sorcery. And back to my original point that I was making before I got off on that uh, rabbit trail there. Tolkien and Howard are pulling from the same sources, but Tolkien is bringing his own intellectualism, his own religious viewpoint, uh, his experiences in the First World War, and, uh, you know, his obsession with linguistics and, and creating, you know, a massive world into this world of the Hobbit, into this world of Middle-earth that he's creating. Whereas Robert E. Howard pulls this into his own worldview in which he is agnostic, if not outright an atheist. Uh, he does not believe in God the same way that Tolkien does. Uh, and you can see this reflected in the Conan character and the way that Conan interacts with Krom, the god of his people. Um, but he also pulls this into Dust Bowl, Texas, a world that has been ravaged by depression and then is experiencing the boom of discovery of oil. As the, you know, the world of oil transitions from Pennsylvania to Texas in the 20th century in the U.S. And through Howard's lens, uh, you know, he's brought from boomtown to boomtown by his father, who's a doctor, chasing kind of the oil men across central Texas. And so he's seeing the modern world intrude on what up until this point had been very rural, very much, you know, Texas in the early 20th century was almost identical to Texas in the 19th century, the late 19th century. Modernity kind of slapped Texas in the face. It wasn't a gradual thing, at least not the way that, you know, interpreting Howard's viewpoints of civilization, it, it seems as though civilization really did Robert E. Howard dirty. And a lot of his literature, especially in the Conan canon, is focused on a resentment of modernity and a resentment of quote-unquote civilization. Conan is a superman of the barbarians. Uh, he is the old ways, and he is a representation of how the old ways are better. Because Conan is free, ultimately. He goes where he pleases, he does whatever he wants. No one's going to get in his way, and if they do, they're going to get an axe between their temples. That's a weird way to put it. They're going to get their head split with an axe. There we go. Again, I'm not very articulate this evening. But anyway... Bringing in the world of role-playing games. Um, 
role-playing games very much come from the sword and sorcery tradition. And even moving beyond Robert E. Howard into, you know, Fritz Lieber, H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Rice Burroughs, they are pulling, you know, Gygax and his contemporaries are very much pulling from this conception of fantasy rather than Tolkien. Although Tolkien is influential, obviously, you know, the Tolkien estate had to be very litigious with TSR as things took off, as, uh, you know, RPGs became big business. You know, you saw things like you can't call them hobbits, uh, you can't call it a Balrog, all that kind of stuff, you know litigation over whether or not they could use terms like orcs that comes in so obviously there is some tolkien influence but a lot of it comes from conan in that you know D is very much a fusion of fantasy with the bizarre and otherworldly i've ta- i talked about this with skeeter not too terribly long ago skeeter green and i talked about this the tower of the elephant is patient zero for what the you know the conception of the dungeon is and so you're looking at uh like you know 1933 at this point when the tower of the elephant comes out um and essentially you know the the twist of the tower of the elephant is the the elephant god isn't an alien. He's a space alien, basically. So you you have this fusion of genres that creates sword and sorcery, weird fiction, all this kind of stuff that eventually, you know, begets role-playing games. But you also have this very professorial, intellectual influence from people like Tolkien. Uh, you know, other people like, you know, Michael Moorcock also kind of brings this. Um, so this is where RPGs come in. Um, and it's here that we talk a little bit about the philosophy that's present in fantasy that makes it unique, how that carries over into RPGs. And what that means for how we run RPGs. And Loopy, I don't know what was interesting to randomly hear. Um, you'll have to you'll have to fill me in on that because I'm just kind of going wild at this point. So, all throughout fantasy, even you know, with Conan, with Lord of the Rings. You have a central theme of characters exploring a broad, uncharted, unknown world with a goal in mind. And the goal of Conan is ultimately just to, you know, be the strongest, to be the, you know, the best he can be, to drink fully from the cup of life to have no chains on him uh, essentially just like be the the best he can possibly be whereas 
you know, with a more focused, more structured, less nihilistic look at the world, you know, the goal of Frodo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings, getting over to, to Tolkien, is really kind of the, the goal that you get in Christianity. It's to undergo an ordeal to pursue a goal of ridding the world of a great evil and throughout that quest to rid yourself of evil, resist temptation, overcome the darkness, and ultimately ascend to heaven, which is what happens at the end of Return of the King. Uh, when, when Frodo gets on the ship at the end, he and Bilbo and all the others who go with him, they are ascending to heaven. Is That's the implication there. And so the epic of the Lord of the Rings is the story of, you know, man falling, being called to something greater by a higher power, and undergoing an ordeal to come out the other side better than they were, and to ultimately, you know, reach heaven. What you have in these is the story of a protagonist struggling towards an ultimate goal. And this struggle is often a violent one, especially in, you know, sword and sorcery. Uh, there's a lot of violence that comes through. But ultimately, each of them is focused on a specific goal. With Conan, the goal is ultimately his freedom, his complete and total freedom. For Frodo, it's to destroy the ring and, uh, with it, evil. And this idea of a quest that everyone must undertake very easily translates into RPGs. Because ultimately what RPGs are in the beginning is you have a dungeon. At the end of this dungeon is a thing that you're looking for. Uh, you need to go in and find it. And so this is really kind of, you know, philosophically where the rubber meets the road, for me at least. Um, the reason why I love RPGs and the reason why I love fantasy is this focus on the betterment of self and the pursuit of a higher goal. Um, these are things that I value very much as someone who loves this genre and loves this game. You know, personally, in my personal life, I value the pursuit of a higher goal, the pursuit of the betterment of myself, and, you know, ultimately that I will someday overcome my demons, become stronger. And, uh, you know, being a religious person, ascend to heaven and, and overcome the worldly struggle that I go through to move on to something better. And this really, irregardless of the intent of Gary Gygax, the intent of the original authors of role-playing, this is what fantasy is. Is this idea of striving towards something 
beyond where we currently are of becoming better, even in something as nihilistic as Conan the Barbarian, which I love because even with its nihilism, with its understanding of, you know, the, the harsh realities of the world, with Robert E. Howard's, uh, you know, lack of devotion to a higher power in his own life, which is, you know, reflective in his literature, Conan is still striving for something more. Conan is still reaching past where he is currently, looking to throw off the chains of civilization and ultimately be his own master. This leads him to ultimately take on the chains of civilization even more as he becomes king. But, you know, self-mastery is Conan's goal and what he pushes for and what he strives for. And the destruction of evil is what Frodo strives for. In an RPG, your characters, your player characters, should be striving for something beyond where they currently are. And again, this is very dependent on whether or not you roleplay. Um, if all you care about is get the treasure, kill the monsters, the philosophical implications of all of this won't matter to you. So if that's not your bag, again, unfortunately, I'm, I'm sorry to not pander to those of you who play that way. Uh, it's a perfectly valid way to play. I don't understand it personally. That's not how I like to play. Uh, so a lot of what I talk about is very focused on roleplay. But your characters in RPGs should be striving for something beyond where they currently are. Um, ultimately, once, you know, it, it, let's say you're going from level 1 to level 20. Uh, and you are able to commit to being able to do that. I've done it before. It's a fantastic feeling. Let's, you know, let's say that's the goal. By level 20, what do you want to be? What do you hope your character will be? This may change. This definitely, if you're playing your character right, will be amended to some degree. Or at least, what happens when you ultimately achieve it will be different from how you set out and what you envisioned when you set out. Because there's no way to know what the journey will entail. Frodo had no idea when he left the Shire that he was going to fall under the influence of the Ring, um, you know, have his mind poisoned by Gollum against his best friend Sam, who, you know, was there with him, and that ultimately uh, he would struggle to even bring himself to throw the ring into the fire. That at that moment, that, you know, big moment of I'm going to release this ring into the fire, he would hesitate and have second thoughts the same way that Isildur before him had those same hesitations. There's no way for Frodo to know this as he's at level one leaving the Shire. Your character should experience the same thing. If you are 
role-playing within the spirit that is really intended by these fantasy stories which influence this game that we play. Your character is leaving the farm, leaving their cushy life as a merchant, leaving their thieves' guild, leaving wherever it was they were found, leaving the gutter, leaving the wizard's tower where they learned their magic with some idea of what they want to be. And that may be completely different, or they may achieve it and find that it's not at all worth what they went through uh, by the end of their journey. And it's that journey of discovery that, you know, the, the way that your character is influenced by the world around them, that is what makes RPGs and fantasy special. It is about the destination, but it's also about the journey. And if you really want a game that is going to stick with your players forever, you should create a game that has your characters questioning their goals, questioning their identity, questioning the morality of everything they do, um, all of this, you know, going into your games as the games go. And the reason why I hold this up is whether or not he intended to do so, Muhammad, my first GM, created a world like this, uh, and that was my entry into D&D. And again, I don't know if he intended to do this. I don't know if I was bringing my own baggage to playing the game this way. If, you know, because of the fantasy that I had read at that point, this is just, you know, what I'm bringing to the table, how I'm exploring Cromwell and his mind and his, you know, the world around him. But I very much embodied Cromwell and everything I did informed what Cromwell did next and you know, the way that his goal ultimately changed. Where when I started out at level one, uh, I thought the end goal for Cromwell would be to, you know, realize that he was a good man. He was not his father. Uh, he had broken the cycle of generational evil. And therefore he could take a throne and rule as a good person and be a magnanimous leader. Ultimately, what happened was Cromwell decided, I'm not going to lead. No one should lead. He kind of became an anarchist. And this was even before I was an anarchist myself. This was just kind of the natural evolution that he went through. Cromwell became an anarchist. He ended his life in a cabin in the woods, uh, basically fighting any would-be tyrants that would pop up throughout the rest of his life. Um, so basically, like, my, my conception of what Cromwell did into retirement, into his old age, because I don't, you know, I, I don't view Cromwell as ever retiring. Um, you know, whenever a new lord began to amass power in the new planet that was created by this wish spell uh, that Cromwell entered into to you know, protect the world from falling to Tiamat. Uh, basically, whenever a new tyrant rose up and began amassing power, Cromwell would visit them and kill them. 
Um, no fanfare. He was not putting together an army or anything. It was just, you know, 20th level ranger is going to sneak in in the middle of the night and he's going to murder this guy. And does it create a power vacuum? Yes. But it prevents that tyrant from rising up. Does it create another tyrant? Potentially. But as long as, you know, from Cromwell's perspective, as long as I draw breath, whenever the next tyrant comes, whenever the next monster comes, I will be there. No one's going to know about it. No one is going to, you know, I'm not a hero. I'm not going to advertise that I'm doing this. But, you know, even, even though to the public I am no one of consequence, that's Cromwell's motto, I am no one of consequence, he is going to work in the shadows to make sure that no one rules over anyone in the way that his father ruled over people, in the way that uh, Tiamat tried to rule over other people, in the way that all the different people that he ran into, the dragons in uh, kind of the, the city that they established. And I wish I could remember the name. I Now I feel bad because I cannot remember the name of that city that was ruled by these dragons. I'll have to go back and, and look for it. Um, but, you know, all the various ways that Cromwell saw tyranny manifest itself. He basically decided, I'm not going to be king. No one should be king. And that's where he ended up. That's the kind of journey that I want my players to go through. That's the kind of journey that I like to see in D&D. And that's the kind of journey that I like my characters to go through when I get the chance to be on the other side of the screen. That is my philosophy on RPGs. Every character at the table should basically be the protagonist of their fantasy novel. Now, this puts tremendous pressure on the GM because you basically are controlling, you know, let's let's think about ideal table numbers, two to six fantasy novels, which have, you know, characters in common, but you're making sure that this happens. You're making sure that each of these players gets an arc and they get to have that feeling. They get to feel cool. They get to feel important. They get to be the star of the show, of their show, for at least a little bit and achieve their goals or find that their goals need to be realigned, however that ends up for your players. That's the high that I'm chasing with this hobby. That's, you know, those are the lofty ambitions that I have for what RPGs can and should be. And ultimately, that's what fantasy should be. That is, in my opinion, the goal of fantasy. It's not just knights and dragons and swords and horses. It is a person or a group of people setting out on a quest and the adventures that they have along the way and the feelings that they have once they finally reach that goal or how that goal changes along the way, how they change along the way. Fantasy is not about static characters. 
in my opinion. It's very much Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. That, like, fantasy is the best genre for it. And that's why, you know, when Jordan Peterson talks about the hero's journey and how it applies to us, and he talks about slaying the dragon, rescuing your father from the abyss, or going into hell and rescuing your father. Um, a lot of this comes from, you know, Greek mythology, but also from kind of the conception of fantasy that we have in our heads. It's because fantasy... One is the storytelling tradition of the Western world. It's a common canon shared between, you know, Western Europe and the United States and other places that Western Europe influenced. Is this, you know, medieval concept of heroism. But ultimately, this, this idea of heroism, this notion of rising above where you are, becoming better than what you are currently, accomplishing a higher goal, striving towards some kind of higher good, and learning a lot about yourself and the world, and allowing the world to change you is the core philosophy of fantasy RPGs. Now, does this apply to other RPGs? Honestly, I think so. There are some that don't hold to that tradition. Um, something like Shadowrun where the goal is not to kind of create a better world, but to survive in the crazy, dark, and gritty world that you live in, or something like Dark Sun. Although I will say Dark Sun does adhere a little bit to the medieval fantasy concept. Just the higher goal of Dark Sun, rather than to overcome evil, because the core tenet of Dark Sun is that evil is. It's always going to be there. You can't overcome it. So the higher goal you pursue in Dark Sun is to create more good. To temporarily set back the clock of evil. And to live another day and make things a little bit better for some people. To do all that you can to hold back the darkness a little while longer. That's Dark Sun. And so in some kind of more grim fantasy settings, you still have that journey that you go on. You still have this hero's journey, this traditional fantasy role that you're playing. Uh, however, it's just a matter of, you know, what is that goal? Will you defeat evil? Probably not. But will you make a little bit more goodness for a little while? Will you turn back the hands of the doomsday clock? That's the goal. It's five minutes to midnight. You're going to roll it back to it's three hours to midnight. 
that's the higher goal you pursue and, and something like that. Now, there are, you know, parallels in superheroes, you know, in Westerns, you also have kind of, Westerns are a lot more like sword and sorcery, where your goal is ultimately your own freedom. Um, it's it's less noble than, uh, like, Tolkien fantasy, although there is a conception of nobility in, like, Taming the West, um, you know, defeating the outlaws, saving the village from the banditos, that kind of thing. You know, that that's present in kind of the, the cowboy tradition. <clears throat> so that's very much there as well. But, you know, honestly, the best stories are stories like this, in my opinion where a protagonist or protagonists pursue a goal higher than themselves, where they strive towards something large. Ultimately, this journey changes them in significant ways. It alters who they are. Uh, but in the end, they succeed in their goal, having changed in the process and now they face the world that they uh, have created. You know, if you look at something like Star Wars, especially the expanded universe, you know, okay, Luke Skywalker brings balance to the Force. And, you know, Darth Vader's defeated, the Empire's fallen. Or, sorry, Darth Vader's redeemed, the Empire's fallen. And in the expanded universe, it's, okay, on to the next threat. Because the balance of the Force still has a dark side. There's The dark side does not go away. Uh, so it's a matter of who, who on the dark side is then going to try to upset the balance again. And how will Luke or whatever other protagonists come along, um, how will they restore balance to the Force? Because that interplay between dark and light is always going to be there. Always going to be present in Star Wars. Uh, which is why you can pretty much continue to tell Star Wars stories to infinity and beyond. Because it's always going to be the dark side and the light side. Good will triumph over the dark side. The light side will triumph. Balance will be restored. And then someone on the dark side will... Re the, the dark side can never be expunged, eradicated. It's always going to be there. Um, it's a matter of restoring balance. So, yeah. Honestly, like that that's the philosophy of gaming to me in a nutshell. And that's why I love this hobby so much. Because not only do you get to experience this, but you get to experience this in a group. You get to experience the thrill of overcoming evil, overcoming something greater than yourself, achieving a larger goal with other people. It's a simulated experience, 
but it still leaves a sense of, you know, we created something. Now, whether that be, you know, we created an actual play podcast that people really enjoy, and, you know, when they meet us, they'll say, hey, that was really fun, I really enjoyed it, I really loved that story, I was very invested. Or maybe it'll just be the memories of a few friends that they carry with them for the rest of their lives. Either way, you created something. Either way, it's something of value. And either way, it's a worthwhile endeavor. It is an exercise in the hero's journey. And hopefully, it can be something that you can apply to your real life. Uh, You can apply the lessons that you learn at the table in self-improvement, in teamwork, group dynamics, all of these things, you know, you, all these things and more, you can learn to apply these things to your life as a gamer, as a person, and ultimately you can strive for something larger in your personal life. That's the inspirational thing in fantasy and role-playing for me is this idea that life is a quest. Life is a quest to overcome our personal demons, better ourselves, do something good, create something good, and, you know, ultimately leave to go on to a better place. That... I mean, for me, that's the essence of life. That's the importance of life, especially, you know, given, especially given my religious nature, you know, as a Christian, I believe that it's my, it's my life's calling to aspire to be like the person of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, uh, you know, at the end to have done good work. To have, you know, done as Christ did, and then to go on to eternity in paradise. Now, whether or not you believe that, whether or not I'm right, I certainly believe I'm right. I certainly, you know, believe wholeheartedly in my religious beliefs. But whether or not you do, you can still have that goal for your life. Uh, You know, ultimately, I I wish that everyone, you know, would believe what I believe. I know not everyone will. But even if you never believe in in Christianity or kind of the, the higher goal of, you know, what I believe in my life, you can still have a higher goal for your life. And you can still find inspiration to live that way in fantasy, in role-playing, take these lessons that you learn from this wonderful thing that we all love so much and apply them to your life and, you know, be a real-life hero. Better yourself as you level up in life, as you age. Become better with age. 
become stronger. Do good, overcome your personal demons, overcome the demons around you, and ultimately leave something that you are happy leaving. Leave something that you have built, a legacy that you've made for yourself. And if you've done that, then you've, you know, lived a good life. You've lived a full, fulfilling life. Um, and, and that's really, ultimately, and I know I've said this several times, that's what fantasy, and that's what fantasy role-playing points towards. Um, the potential that we can live a better life, that we can overcome, you know, what's around us. And that is the spirit that I like to encourage in my role-playing. That's what I like to bring to the table. So that's really what I had to say about, you know, the the philosophy of role-playing games and the philosophy of fantasy. That it is about self-improvement. It is about a struggle to overcome something... Uh, that is greater than us to slay the dragon. It is aspirational, inspirational. And it can be more than just escapism for us. It can be something to guide us, something to show us a better way. So, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I'm sorry if it was a little bit rambly, a little bit incoherent. Um, honestly, this is something I've been thinking about for a couple days. This is something I think about a lot, to be perfectly honest. So I hope you guys got something out of this. Um, I enjoyed talking about it. Uh, I will say, moving forward next week... Uh, I believe we will have a guest on the show. Let me verify that real quick. Uh, just as we talk about what's coming up here. Let's see. The 26th. Uh, yeah, RPG Pundit will be on the show next Monday. That'll be pretty cool. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking with him. Um, he and I are going to cover a lot of the same ground that Avenger and I covered. That's a lot of the reason why I wanted to get some of this out here. Um, this is why I have problems with a lot of things that come up in modern fantasy, modern RPGs, is my view that fantasy is ultimately pushing us to aim higher, be better improve our lives, overcome obstacles, uh, you know, ultimately throw the ring in the fire and uh, bring some good to the world. That's why a lot of these problems come up that Venger and I talked about and now RPG Pundit and I will talk about. So that'll be next week. Uh, this Thursday, I will be painting a Highland Warrior. Uh, the same time, 8 o'clock, uh, I've, I've got a Dark Sword miniature Highland Warrior that I'll be painting. Uh, i got a new camera setup that I'm excited to, uh, to play with here. Hopefully it'll be easier to paint around than last time, but yeah, that's coming up. Uh, so until then, guys, thank you so much for listening, and whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I am so glad that you rolled your bones with me 
Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.